0: This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX. That's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello, and welcome to the new season of The Francis Effect Podcast. This episode is for the third week of January 2018. My name is David Dalt, and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen, about culture and faith. I'm here with Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and he's an assistant professor of systematic theology at the Catholic Theological Union here in Chicago. All through the fall and now through the winter, we've been getting together every couple of weeks to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you.
1: David, good to be with you.
0: Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Uh, on today's episode, we're going to look at three topics. To start out, we're looking at the most recent developments in the debate about immigration, and there's a lot to talk about. There's chain migration, there's DACA, and there's the situation with both the Syrian refugees and the Salvadoran refugees that are all in the news right now. And next, we're going to talk about Michael Wolf's new book, Fire and Fury, and the unexpected feud between President Trump and Steve Bannon. And in our last segment on the show, we'll talk about the recent announcement that President Trump intends to begin officially recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. We also have special bonus segments for all you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a bit of bonus audio or an extended discussion or an interview or even this season, some video. Uh, you'll be seeing that. If you'd like to hear them or watch them, you can. You can go to patreon.com FrancisFXPod and become a monthly supporter of the show to unlock that bonus content. Before we get started, just wanted to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or a comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing
1: franciseffectpod at gmail.com. Happy New Year, Dan. How was your holiday? It was good. Um, a little brief, the way that the holidays played out this year, we had in the liturgical cycle, you had it's the shortest fourth week of Advent ever. Mm. It was exactly 18 hours or something like that, you know. So it, we had a Saturday night vigil mass for the fourth Sunday of Advent. Sunday morning was the fourth Sunday of Advent and the end of the fourth week of Advent because Sunday evening was Christmas Eve Monday morning was Christmas Day mm. and that's repeated a week later where you have New Year's falling on uh, on a Monday. So it was it was kind of bizarre, but it was nice to be with family, it was nice to visit friends and then uh, kind of hurried back to Chicago uh, just in time for the cold front to mm. come in and uh, we started the new academic semester. So we're underway uh with that, which is good. I'm I'm enjoying courses I'm teaching, good class personalities, as you know, as a a fellow professor that, you know, every class is just a little bit different. And and it always depends on the mix of folks who show up there on the first day. And so it's a good, good couple groups this year. But then I was off to the great state of Nevada, which is always an interesting experience for the Diocese of Reno annual conference. They bring in, you know, about a dozen or so speakers every year, to give presentations to catechists and parishioners and parish and diocesan staff. About 1,200 people or so come to that. And it's just a wonderful event. I I highly recommend it. If you're in uh, Northern California or Nevada, it's always the first weekend in January. And it was bizarre because it's up in the mountains. It's at like 4,000, almost 5,000 feet elevation above sea level. And it was like 55 degrees. Meanwhile, here in the Midwest and in the East Coast, it was like, negative a hundred or something. Yeah. You know, it's that crazy, crazy cold front. So everybody had unseasonable, unseasonably odd weather. So that was that was my experience. How was your your time? Yeah, we went
0: to Pittsburgh to be with my wife's family, and that is always a good time. If you live near the Pittsburgh area, uh, shout out to the Carson Street Deli, which in my opinion has the best sandwiches anywhere in the world. And so I went and had uh, the sandwich that I love to have every time that I go to the Pittsburgh area. And then the kids got, for Christmas, a guitar and a ukulele, which they had oh, asked for, wow. and so they've been taking piano lessons, but now they, they get to do some stringed instruments, and I'm a, I'm a guitar player, so it's nice to kind of share that with them, because I don't do so well on the piano, although I know you're a piano player, right?
1: I am, yeah. It's, it's interesting. I went the other way. So when I was in first grade, I took guitar lessons for about a year and mm-hmm. had a, a little kind of introductory, the little kid size guitar, and... And that was that was nice, but I never really got passionate about it. And then a few years later, started taking piano lessons, and wasn't very disciplined about uh, practicing. And uh, I kind of, after two years, my parents said, "If you're not going to practice, we're not going to pay for lessons." Uh-huh. But it was enough to kind of ground me in in the instrument. And I picked it back up in high school and have played ever since. Yeah. Are you a chord reader? Do you do tabs? I mean, I I know just very little about guitars. My brothers are guitarists.
0: Sure. So my wife is a classically trained musician, and so she can sit down and read music. I actually can't read music. I do everything by ear. And so I was a background, I was a a professional singer-songwriter in Atlanta for a number of years and, and toured and hung out with that crowd and did it all again by just picking stuff up by ear. And I wish now that I had more music theory and the ability to read music. So the fact that our kids are going to get both of these, they're going to get the good classical training, and my wife will help with that, and I'll be able to help them with ear training, that is that is going to be fun, I think. That's cool. Yeah. Well, let's get into it. So much has happened since the last time that we talked, and a good deal of it has to do with the completely and continuing just saga of immigration here in In America and the way that this current administration is really kind of turning the screws on people who are in pretty desperate situations. So we've talked a little bit about the dreamers on this program before. For those that are are just joining the program and are unfamiliar with, with DACA or the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, what that is is people who were brought here as minors by their parents who they had no real choice in the matter. And now they're here and they've been raised as Americans. They don't know their their quote-unquote home culture. But now the rescinding of the provisions that were put in place by the Obama administration now make it such that it is very likely that these people will be deported to countries that they don't speak the language, they don't know the culture, they don't really have connections. And in some cases, the countries are incredibly hostile to them. The other thing is that we have refugees who have been here in the country and they have been settled and resettled, and there, has, there have been programs, including Catholic programs, to help to settle both Syrian refugees and Salvadoran refugees. And just this week, some decisions have been made about those things as well that are going to really affect both of these refugee populations. And I know, Dan, that the, the bishops have said some things about these issues, but I'm, I would just turn it over to you and say kind of, where, what should we be thinking and where should we be turning our attention with all of these things to be keeping an eye on? Yeah,
1: so I I would, for those new listeners, as as you mentioned and addressed a second ago, I'd encourage them to go back to our archive and and listen to the discussion on DACA specifically. With regard to that policy, the U.S. bishops have not changed their statements or perspective uh, in view the decision to discontinue the program and potentially force deportation upon these uh, young people. They, They see this as to put it mildly, bad, to put it more accurately, immoral and unjust. And so that's one thing. One thing else to add to the mix is that the U.S. bishops this week, it just coincidentally, as it were, or maybe by means of divine providence, this happens to be Immigration Prayer Week or Immigration Solidarity Week. Yeah. uh, and as you mentioned a moment ago, one of the things that just happened within the last few days, and so those of you who are listening to this Wednesday and beyond, we we're recording this uh, at the end of the previous week, what was announced was the ending of the Temporary Protected Status Program for those Salvadoran, effectively political refugees, you know, who are escaping violence, um, gang violence, cartel violence, uh, that, that actually goes back again, to the United States, you know, this MS-13 Salvadoran gang was something that was birthed here in the States, and then essentially exported from the U.S. back to El Salvador as a result of these deportations. And and now there's kind of a second round of increased violence in an in already very afflicted nation, the nation of El Salvador. You know, the, this original protected status goes back to the Civil War of the 80s and, and early 90s, People will recall the martyr Archbishop Oscar Romero, who was killed for speaking out against the government and the military that had U.S. backing and U.S. training, U.S. funding, and and was responsible for all sorts of uh, violations against human rights and dignity, these uh, violent atrocities. Fast forward another 20 years, and there was a a terrible earthquake that took place in El Salvador uh, right around the turn of the 21st century. And the u s uh, allowed for a special protected status for those people who were affected by by that so what's what's going on now is that uh, basically that protected status has been renewed for almost eighteen years, and a lot of folks, you can think about it, if you came over here to the United States as a two or three year old or something, this is the only country you know it's the only you may not even speak spanish you may you may know nothing of your parents' homeland. And for those who are adults who are here, I mean, that's, that's a life sentence, right? That's a lifetime, 18 years. And this thought that you can just take 200,000 people that have one day been welcomed here and have been, you know, perceived this, this place, this country, this culture, these communities as their own and then all of a sudden say, oh, by the way, we've changed our mind, is, is just abhorrent. Well, and some things about
0: the history that you were giving. So if we look back 40 years to the School of the Americas, and I grew up in, in Columbus, Georgia, which is just north of Fort Benning, where the School of the Americas was was housed. This was a program where candidates were selected in various Central and South American countries. They were brought to America for training, and then they were sent back into their countries to be military advisors and military leaders. But what that often became was they became the the core of juntas. And in the case of El Salvador and a couple of other countries, the core of death squads. They were trained in tactics, which were basically special operations tactics, ways to suppress, ways to control populations and ways to use, in many cases, terror tactics. And so the disappearances of people in the middle of the night, the, the, the mass murder of, of political dissidents, the all, torture, the torture, all, sexual assaults. all of that can be traced back in some ways to the School of the Americas. So as a country, we have a moral responsibility to El Salvador because of all of the ways that we have meddled in their politics and all of the ways that we have trained their military leaders to enact terror, on their populations yeah
1: and, and just to elaborate on that a little bit further for those uh, who who aren 't familiar, so the school of the americas the u s government will, will say this was something in Fort Benning, Georgia, that was you know this this institute that David was just talking about a second ago it The government will say that it was closed in in the 2000s. that 's not true. They changed the name to Winsec, which is the western Hemispheric something, 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 but it 's basically the, the exact same thing. Founded in the '80s, as David was talking about, this was uh, a military institute designed uh, and basically risen out of this fear of communism. Yeah, and the fear of what happened in Cuba, for instance, really bothered u- certain U.S. politicians that decided to back authoritarian and uh, mi- military dictatorship governments uh, in Central and South America. It's it's just there's there's so much to say about it. I just couldn't agree more with you, David, that that we have as Citizens of the United States, uh, our representatives who we elect to serve us as leaders of this country, people who have served in and and support our military that have been part of this uh, history, we have an obligation and responsibility to those that have been directly affected. In fact, I don't know, you know, allowing for um, some protected status, some temporary immigration, a, a place to stay here is like the very least we can do but i have to be honest with you i'm i'm at times very <laughs> pessimistic about this and we talk about the structural injustices of racism and and sexism here in the united states particularly though when we think about uh, the history of native american genocide and chattel slavery and the treatment of uh, men and women of color we don't even as a society take seriously our own history nor do we take seriously very sound, I would argue, cases for reparations or uh, attempts for reconciliation and making amends as as a society. It, to do this for people who are not citizens of this country and and who don't necessarily live here, and here I'm thinking of the whole nation of El Salvador and, and uh, the fragile state that it's in today because of, yet again, uh, an American export. In the 80s, we exported military violence, torture, tactics, all these things you named, and re- more recently, we've exported gang conflicts and uh, territorial disputes and this sort of thing that have spilled over into the civilian population. So, we, you know, as Christians, I think we have a particular obligation and responsibility to to speak up, to say something about this, and to stand in solidarity with those who have not only suffered once, but or maybe more than once, but that are, are facing yet again another form of destabilization and unjust treatment.
0: Well, and we can also talk about the Catholic impact of this. So there are Catholic organizations that have sprung up in the past two and a half decades to help to resettle these people into America, to help them to integrate into American culture and life and there's, by the the last number that I read, there's between 18 and 23 of these organizations that stand now to be closed and to shutter their work because the, this population is going to be removed. And so, you know, that is going to have an effect not only on the Salvadoran persons, but also on, you know, the lives and livelihoods of the people that have dedicated themselves to helping these people through these Catholic charities. That's a that's a more minor consequence, but it's still a consequence that we need to think about because, you know, the church has been, and I want to stress this, the Catholic church has been at the forefront of helping these people and has been at the forefront of advocating for these people, and I think rightfully so. And I wish that there were more people in in our government who would understand the impact because the people who have been dealing with these populations both here in America and also on the ground in countries like El Salvador and other countries where these people would be sent back to— All of them are saying across the board, this is a a horrible idea because of the destabilizing effect that this will have both in American populations, but also the destabilizing effect that will happen when we try and return these people to their countries. So there's a lot of consequences.
1: Yeah, and if if I can, not to nitpick, but you say return these people to their countries – I mean, for for a lot of these uh, men and women and children, this is their country. Fair you know? enough. Yeah. And, and I think, and I don't think you'd at all disagree. And I don't. No. That's why I don't mean to get on your case about it. But you know, I, I think of this in a very personal way too. Um, you know, this affects people that oftentimes a lot of folks aren't even aware of. So I live with uh, a fellow friar who's from El Salvador, who was born in El Salvador and came to the United States with his family when he was a teenager, became a U.S. citizen several several years ago, quite a while ago you know, learned English at 17, went to, you know, a Maryland high school, um, is very much a part of this country. This is his country. And yet he has uh, ties. He has family members. His parents for the at this very moment happened to be in El Salvador. They split their time between uh, El Salvador and the United States. One of the things as well, for four years, I lived in a suburb of Washington, D.C., uh, our friar community in Silver Spring, Maryland. Well, Silver Spring in Montgomery County has one of the highest uh, kind of percentage of Salvadoran refugees people who are or are, are of el salvadoran descent and you hear the stories you get to know people you you learn when you're living in a community with folks who have gone through these terrors and live a precarious life because many of them or maybe family members are undocumented it's just it's it's unjust so maybe we can wrap up because i think we we're on the same page and yeah. and you know are in complete agreement with the the leaders of of the U.S. Catholic Church, our our bishops on this front, they, like with the DACA decision, they released statements uh, strongly opposing this move to the Trump administration to deport 200,000 Salvadoran refugees. So, you know, if you're listening to this, particularly if you're in uh, one of the states or municipalities that has been very generous in welcoming uh, these folks, you know, see what you can do on the local level. Certainly, call your legislators, and we'll see what we can do to stand in solidarity with our sisters and brothers.
0: It's clear that we're going to be coming back to this issue again and again through this season, because between the El Salvadoran refugees, the Syrian refugees, and the the dreamers, we're going to have a lot of chances to talk about this. But for now, uh, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to The Francis Effect, and we'll be back in a moment. The Francis Effect is made possible in part by our wonderful supporters at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod to find out about how you can join them. A couple of dollars a month really adds up, and we appreciate it. That's P dot slash francisfxpod. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together and talk about issues and current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Well, one of the strangest things that's happened in the past couple of weeks has been basically, God, I don't want to cuss, but it's a show <laughs> on, on, the, on the political right. It's a, it's a crap storm on the political right.
1: I'm not sure crap storms any better, <laughs> but I'm, I'm cool am cool. It. Yeah. It's all
0: right but it's a crap storm on the political right that has happened between Steve Bannon and Donald Trump. And the locus of it has been this book by Michael Wolf called the fire and fury. And I have not read the book and I have only read certain excerpts of it in the New Yorker magazine, but I know that you've been reading the book and I would love to talk about this, but I will just say, you know, it's interesting to me. uh, It has been interesting to me to see the way in which the tactics that were used and sort of abused uh, against Democrats over the past eight years, it almost feels, it felt to me looking at this, and maybe you have a different take, but it's almost like that reflex kicked in and suddenly the same the same organizations and the same organs that have been attacking the political establishment for eight years just couldn't help themselves. Meaning what? I'm not, I'm not sure I follow. Well, so, so to you know, Bannon has said that his his whole goal is to undermine the legitimacy of established government. And he's, oh, I see. And and so and he's used his his operations like Breitbart as outside agitators to do that. And it's almost like once he was out of the political establishment, that reflex kicked back in, and he began to say things and to, to operate in a way that was going after maybe not Donald Trump per se, but the, but the people who had surrounded Trump who had been more establishment figures. Because let's be honest, even though Trump ran on a populist ticket, he came in and he surrounded himself with a lot of known quantities in terms of what some people would call the deep state.
1: Yeah. And I don't particularly care for that term um, because it, it lends itself to sort of conspiracy imaginings. But there is a what we might call in a, in a non-conspiratorial way, you know, what do they call them? Professional bureaucrats. I mean, people who will be in administrative positions as politicians come and go. People you
0: know. who understand the complexity of government and know their jobs and how to do their They're jobs.
1: They're the ones who aren't in the news, but they have the training, the qualifications, the experience, the connections. They're the ones who actually, I was thinking about this writing the L from the airport a couple of days ago. I was thinking, you know as much as to use your your second term there as much as there is a crap storm at times you know that we recognize in the in the media coming out of a place like washington dc and we see in congress and we see in the executive uh, branch of the federal government you know i'm grateful for the people who run you know the transportation systems and the faa and and all these kinds of things you know collect the garbage like Thank God for the everyday professional class of of government workers, and so they're they're the un uh, kind of heralded people that we need to to really celebrate and yet, as you rightly point out by using this term invoking this term deep state it, there's been in the kind of bannon like dismantling or or kind of Molotov cocktail throwing efforts to burn everything down, they become the enemy it's It's analogous to me to what these talking heads on program on channels like Fox News from some years back, like Glenn Beck, you know, he went after people like Roman Catholic clergy who were speaking out on behalf of social justice. And he said, you know, that's a, if you hear your pastor or priest say social justice, you should leave the church. He was also the same kind of person along with characters now also disgraced Bill O'Reilly, who would constantly rail against, you know, people like school teachers and criticize them. I mean, how do you make Elementary school teachers, the enemy. And so, yeah, I think there's something to that this kind of distorting of reality and the, uh, the scapegoating and demonizing of certain groups of people uh, and classes of people. So let's talk a little bit about this book, though. Yeah,
0: and what, what what was it that made you want to pick this up in the first place? I mean, yes, current events, but I, I all you know, I've heard a variety of reports about it that it's you know it's a it's a fair reporting that it's salacious that it's gossip. So what was it? It's that all made of
1: you, those things. What made it, What made you want to <laughs> dig into it? Curiosity. I, part of it had to do with trusted uh, sources confirming for me that it was worthwhile to explore. So that's the kind of more legitimate side of things or respectable side of things. The other side of it is a guilty pleasure, mm. that it is it is indeed gossipy. It is indeed salacious. It reminds me of uh, another book I read maybe now seven years ago or something like that called This Town by Mark Leibovich. You may recall that. Mark Leibovich, not unlike Michael Wolf, is a mixed bag when it comes to reputation as a journalist. So Mark Leibovich is a staff, I don't know if he still is, or, or at least he was a, a staff writer for the... New York Times Magazine, and kind of a Washington figure, and really was one of the, the folks in the aughts who, in, in, in print journalism, started to move away from these conventions of respectability and, you know, everyone whispers to one another about things, but nobody ever prints it sort of thing. So there's the official kind of printed story, but then there's the thing that all the reporters and all the politicians and all the staffers know and they talk about. He started sharing some of that in in major ways, including this book, "This Town," which is is not, you know, it's it's a very gossipy book. That's mm-hmm. basically what it is, and it got him into a lot of hot water with uh, sources and friends and this sort of stuff uh, and and contacts in the D.C. area and government and in media. Fast forward to this year, this this last week, you have Michael Wolf who. Likewise, is kind of has a mixed bag reputation. On the one hand, he is an established journalist who's written for and been a staff writer at at a number of publications, including Esquire and GQ and has written for The Washington Post and New York Times at various points. And so very reputable journalistic pedigree. And yet he also has a reputation for sometimes exaggeration or maybe not exactly getting all the particular details correct. And and that's something I want to say you know i'm about 40% of the way through the book right now i mean i read for a living and so reading for pleasure is is sometimes uh, i don't have as much opportunity to do it so i'm getting in a couple pages as as i can when i can but what i'll say so far is that the the best way i've heard this book described in terms of its kind of veracity is that at the micro level? If you look at every little kind of encounter, every little portrayal of an exchange between, let's say, Steve Bannon or between Ivanka Trump and you know, and Reince Priebus or between um, you know, Jared Kushner and Anthony Scaramucci or between President Trump and somebody else, and so on and so on. Maybe there are little things that are off. For instance, in the New York Times book review. The the author of the of of the review of Michael Wolff's book is one of their kind of uh, standard political correspondents in Washington. So he was reading the book and reviewing it from the perspective of a political journalist, and and he says for he pointed out a couple of things that that at, at the surface seem really insignificant, like he misspelled somebody's name who uses one L instead of two Ls. Okay, all right, but it is also indicative of. You know, things that could easily be verified and checked. And so I think that's a fair critique. On the micro level, there may be cracks in the facade. But here's the thing that those in the know, those who are lifetime and Pulitzer Prize winning political journalists, those who are insiders in politics have said is that at the macro level, when we look at the kind of bigger picture that's being articulated and portrayed, it is true. And I think it, it doesn't take much imagination to recognize uh, a lot of, as you put it, the more salacious things, or at least the kind of "wow" stories and, and anecdotes have gotten a lot of play on on the news and in in, in uh, on TV. But at the end of the day, as, as, as on the micro level on the kind of immediate level or discrete level, those things do seem shocking at first. It doesn't take long for the average person to step back and say, well, you know, that fits with my perception of this administration and the way things are working and these characters that are involved. It's also interesting. You, you know, you began our conversation talking about Steve Bannon, a notorious figure in his own right. He, though he's tried to backpedal in formal ways, including uh, after several days of being – lambasted by his own supporters, financial and otherwise ideologically. He released a statement in which he never really apologizes, but tries to shift, you know, kind of spin the statement that he makes that Don Trump Jr., his actions meeting with the Russians was treasonous. It's interesting that at no point has he ever said that any of the things that are quoted of of him being quoted are untrue. And so I think that's also telling. There are You get a lot of general pushback from people like President Trump and others about his own mental state and these sorts of things at the macro level. But curiously enough, the direct quotes and the statements and the kind of the ethos of this White House, you don't see a lot of credible pushback.
0: Well, I want to pivot for a moment and I want to think about Steve Bannon because Steve Bannon is Catholic. He's a co-religionist. He's a person who shares the faith that you and I share well and yeah well but and and, the, and that that well that you just did that's that's what I want to in, dig yeah, into because yeah. we have talked about the kind of ultra right-wing Catholics that attack you and attack others people like Church Militant and how they look at people who profess the faith and say they're not Catholic enough. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a danger sometimes of people who are progressive or who are more kind of social justice oriented in their in their Catholic walk that kind of burn it in Seamless garment Catholics to look at certain uh, other Catholics and say, "Well,
1: they're you know they're outside the pale." Yeah, and, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. I, I'm I'm not. My well isn't a response to whether or not Steve Bannon is Catholic. My well is that we practice the same religion.
0: Fair, okay, and and this begins to be the place where it's really interesting to me because I come from a background where I wrote my dissertation and, and did a lot of thinking about this tendency to other the people that are, that are in your group. And so that reflex of, you know, I I want to dig into that. How, how do we find common ground with someone like Steve Bannon? Since we are called to love people with whom we disagree or people who have harmed us or who who we see to have harmed others? How do we make reconciliation with people who at least profess the same faith, even if we feel like they are enacting that faith in the world in a different way? That's something that I struggle with in my prayer life, and that's something that I struggle with in my intellectual life, because it's much more tidy and comfortable for me to simply say, well, I write that guy off, yeah. And and I'm constantly confronted by a gospel that tells me not to do that.
1: Yeah. And I'm with you there for, on all fronts, including the difficulty of doing it. I also think you, you summarize well what we're called to, and it, and it isn't a flat-out dismissal. So I don't advocate that. I, I think what's challenging is, as with our social discourse, so goes our religious dialogue. Mm. And by that, I mean... Using, I mean, we're talking about a very particular person that I don't know personally. So mm-hmm. I don't know Steve Bannon. I am not his pastor. He has never consulted me on theological themes or practicing his faith. He, to my, well, I I couldn't say anything about whether or not he's. You know, I've interacted with him sacramentally. That's that's out out of bounds. But all I can say is I don't know him personally. Mm-hmm. So I, I hesitate to to comment on somebody's faith, and it's not really my place. I don't believe it is my place to comment on anybody's faith. What I can comment on as a Catholic priest, as a professed religious, as a professional theologian, is I can comment on the statements people make about the faith. Mm. I have a duty and an obligation. We've talked about this last season. You know, you and I are both professional theologians. We have a responsibility. Now, I, you know, this is my, my primary ministry is yeah. the responsibility of forming men and women for ministry uh, with professional theological and ministerial degrees. I mean, at a graduate school of theology, and so it is literally my job to know what the church teaches and to pass that on in very particular ways. And so I guess my, my well from earlier is when I hear certain things expressed by Mr. Bannon in terms of how his faith motivates his understanding of the world, his understanding of policy, his understanding of uh, even religious practice and a relationship to other religious traditions such as Islam or Judaism— That does not square with what, for instance, the church teaches. Case in point, the U.S. bishops, we talked in the last uh, segment about DACA, about Salvadoran refugees. We've talked about Syrian refugees and political refugees. uh, the, The primary author of the president's executive order that instituted a travel ban that was several times deemed unconstitutional, the primary author was Steve Bannon and his assistant Stephen Miller. And so those policies... Just like you'll have some folks who will say it is unjust for a Catholic Christian to be an assassin or a pimp or, you know, an abortion doctor or anything. You know, you can fill in the blank. This falls into similar grounds. The kind of politics that Steve Bannon promotes and that he on the record has said is informed by his view of Christianity and Catholicism, which tends to be admittedly a kind of apocalyptic and in, in in some sense reactionary, a view of a certain kind of Christian Europe and a certain view of a kind of Christian North America that may never have existed. In both fronts, that's my resistance. My resistance isn't to him as a person and as a person of faith. And like you, I struggle to pray for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I struggle to try to empathize. You know, when when I do, when I feel like I'm more successful than than other times, what I tend to pick up on is you know you mentioned church militant and the mm-hmm founder of that organization is a man who very clearly struggles with his sexual identity, with his own personal history, with his view of the world, and, and finds refuge in a very black and white, very uh, circumscribed understanding of Christianity and of Catholicism. And and there, it, it seems kind of like wearing your position and your history on your sleeve, at, you know, at the risk of armchair perception. In the case of Steve Bannon, there might be something very, very similar. Things in his past, ideological views, personal experiences, family history, I don't know because I don't know him. But when I'm trying to be empathetic, I try to understand, okay, I could see perhaps how certain events in one's history, certain uh, experiences, certain ideological views might shape this kind of outlook. And it doesn't mean I condone it. But I think that's the challenge that you were talking about as well that I need to strive for. My wife and I talk about this a lot,
0: and one of the things that we've come to as sort of people that have converted into the Catholic faith is, is that for us, a core for Catholicism is the concept of hospitality the concept that if we look at the history of the development of doctrine the controversies and the heresies we find that the church has again and again found ways to be more inclusive and not with a perfect record but certainly you know when when it had the chance to either tighten the belt and say these folks are are out i'm thinking of like the donatist controversy and all back in the in the early days of the church <laughs> it has chosen instead to to find ways to be more expansive and to be more forgiving and inclusive for me, that ties together several pieces. It ties together the way that I approach someone like Steve Bannon, but it also ties together the way that we should be approaching things like what we talked about in the last segment refugees that are in our midst, people who are other from us, who are somehow with us. Our job as Catholics, our job as Christians is not to draw lines. Our job is to open is to open arms and to find ways to comfort and to care for the broken and the wounded. And if what you're saying about people like Steve Bannon and the, the leaders of Church Militant is true, then what they are doing—and we can't psychoanalyze them, we don't know them—but maybe what they're doing is coming from a place of brokenness, a place of woundedness, a place of fear. Totally. Yeah. What, what is our job as Christians? Our job is to find a way to listen to that without necessarily agreeing with it. And to find a way to build a bridge where they feel that they are part of the beloved community in a way that they can begin to exercise hospitality as well. I don't know how to do that. I think that that's more the action of the Holy Spirit. But I know that I have to be open to that. And I have to be willing to have that work and not have the tidiness of saying, well, I get to see them suffer now. Because that is my ego reflex, and I really have that. I really like to see my enemies suffer. <laughs> and, <laughs> True confession. And, confessions, and, I, yeah. and I, wish, I wish that I did not have that reflex. But in my better moments, as you said, I am able to see that the church's job and that the church's call to me is not to be a judge and not to draw lines, but instead to find deeper ways to be hospitable. And that's, that's my, my
1: prayerful struggle in this moment yeah no i'm I'm sympathetic to that I, I i share that in common with you i It's interesting I'm thinking about the building bridges thing there's there's a kind of a cliched adage that i don't know if that's redundant a cliched adage uh, i guess most adages are you know that you can't change somebody else you can only change yourself you know or some version of that and I think in this case that's another thing like it's it's not my place to quote unquote convert somebody else's view or experience. I'm called to live the gospel as you are, as Steve Bannon is, as Michael Voris and all these other people are. And my hope is that, you know, that in the experience of trying and struggling and doing one's best to walk in the footprints of Jesus Christ, as as Francis of Assisi always put it, you know, that that is something that opens a space, like you said, of hospitality or of welcome. But, you know, I'm also reminded of what Martin Luther King Jr. and people like Dorothy Day frequently talked about which is you, you can't have success as your primary goal. Yeah. Like you know it's it's the work of nonviolent resistance, it's the work of peacemaking, it's the work of of the gospel, which is an abject failure by the wisdom of the world. I mean for heaven's sake, Jesus Christ was crucified. He lost, you know, to quote to quote Donald Trump, you know, he's a loser, literally. You know, he did not win. He didn't overcome the Roman Empire. He didn't lead any kind of military victory. He was he surrendered and was killed. I'm very fond of reminding Christians of the original end of Mark's gospel, which is how how it's a, it's a story of losers, how the disciples leave the empty tomb, they flee and run away, and they tell nobody of what they saw because they were afraid. And we can stay in that space, or we can embrace the fact that um, and I take that as kind of a cautionary tale of what Christianity is all about. We're not called to be quote-unquote winners and so forth. We're we're called to be followers of the gospel and doing the will of the Father, which is all about love. And it's not touchy-feely love. It's the love of that struggle you mentioned, the struggle of can we pray for one another uh, as Jesus instructs us, as Paul reminds us, pray for those who persecute you, build one another up in the, in the body of Christ, you know it's so much easier said than done and sometimes it's not it's not even easy to say <laughs> and so um yeah well, I keep working on it we got really kind of sidetracked from the book and yeah. we're kind of running out of time but I, I just want to say it, it is an interesting book I, i'm not sure if i recommend it or not you know that's kind of a hard I, i'm not finished with it so i can't say you know kind of conclusively but but i will say that it's 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 an interesting read and if it, it doesn't really change much of my perception of what's actually going on but it gives form to the chaos or the storm that you were talking about earlier
0: well with that let's bring this segment to a close you're listening to the francis effect and we'll be back in just a moment hello this is david uh outside the podcast realm for the moment just talking to you in advertising land If you're enjoying the conversation that we're having, I want to make sure that you're aware that I do another show as well called Things Not Seen, Conversations About Culture and Faith. That's a weekly show that's been on since 2011, and we've talked to some amazing guests. It's basically a long-form interview where we get a chance to talk about how faith animates a person's life. We talk to authors and politicians and tastemakers and musicians, any kinds of folks that have some sort of faith component to their lives. So I'd love it if you get if you gave that a chance, too, and gave that a listen. That's at ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. That's ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we come together to bring you commentary on current events and culture from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about some global news that has worldwide consequence, and it takes place at the center of the heart of the world's three major monotheistic religions Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And of course, we're talking about the Holy Land, Jerusalem in particular you may recall, at the end of last year, 2017, the Trump administration announced that it would recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and move the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem as a sign of that recognition. This has caused a, <laughs> another crap storm, <laughs> to use the uh, phrase of the day. Uh, worldwide, everyone from Pope Francis to most of the uh, Islamic republics in the, in the Middle East to, uh, to the British government and many of our other allies, essentially everybody except for the prime minister of Israel is against this. Uh, so we have Donald Trump and, and, and then basically operating on his own and somewhat unilaterally. David, what do we make of this?
0: There's a lot to unpack here, and I think you've, you've set the stage exactly right. So I, I'm thinking, first of all, of a hymn that I used to sing when I was in the school choir in college at Swanee, which was an Episcopal school. So we'd sing a lot of religious hymns, and there was this one hymn where we would sing this, this wonderful kind of refrain, Jerusalem is builded as a city that is in unity with itself. And I, I think about the irony of and that. It's so that, ironic. It's because, yeah. because if we think about the history of this city, particularly in the 20th and now the 21st century, it has been anything but unified. Now, what Donald Trump has done is not simply to act unilaterally, although I think that he has in some ways that that's an accurate statement. But what he has done is to basically recognize and energize a piece of legislation that Congress enacted almost 20 years ago. And Congress recognized Jerusalem as the as the capital of Israel. But every president, I think very wisely since that time, has chosen to find ways to suppress the enactment of that. And what Donald Trump has said is that he's simply going to now let this doctrine that Congress put in place almost two decades ago flourish. Now, At the time that he did this, I thought that this was a cynical move to gin up support of the evangelical base, and maybe it was. I wonder, I don't necessarily know that Donald Trump is a long-term strategic thinker. I don't see any upside to this in terms of the peace process. I don't see any upside to this in terms of creating a situation where the Palestinians would suddenly be more willing to come and make concessions. I don't see any upside to this in terms of of helping to really deal with the realities on the ground, and they are very complex there in the Holy Land. Now, I haven't been personally to the Holy Land. I believe you have not been to the Holy Land, but I've talked to enough people, and I'm sure that you have as well, people that that have been there that have talked to both Jews, Israelis, Palestinians, that the situation is not something that you can simply flip a light switch and it'll suddenly be resolved. Just proclaiming that Jerusalem is now the capital of Israel and recognizing that and moving the embassy
1: stands to create more problems than solve them by where I'm sitting. No, absolutely. You know, what it does is a number of things. One is it torpedoes the United States' hitherto kind of leadership in trying to negotiate peace talks and um, work toward a two-state solution, which is up until now, generally been the U.S. policy. It's the policy and the intention of most of the members of the United Nations. The Holy See, a permanent observer there, has long stood for that. John Paul II, Benedict XVI, uh, Pope Francis, and so forth, have all been vocal supporters of a two-state solution, meaning that the way that one works toward a permanent place of peace is to uh, allow a Palestinian state and an Israeli state that would be mutually recognized and so forth. This has a lot of, it just has so many levels, like you said, of consequence. We're talking about concentric circles of significance, including within Jerusalem itself. It had long been kind of assumed that if we could ever get to a a ceasefire in a place of mutual compromise, that the Palestinian uh, authority and the, the state of Israel would share the city of jerusalem there'd be some kind of demarcation you might think of like an east and west berlin sort of thing yeah and that jerusalem would indeed be the capital not only of the state of israel but of the state the palestinian state as well so what this effectively does is torpedo the long-standing diplomatic strategy not only of the united states but effectively of the entire world that's one thing another thing that it does is it undoes Secretary of State John Kerry's work. He'd been working very, very hard to try to bring us back into a leadership position and facilitating a peace deal. We can think of the work that was done in the 70s and 80s, the Camp David Accords, uh, the work that uh, President Bill Clinton had uh, tried to, you know, advance as well in the 90s. And John Kerry had made it really one of his primary goals as Secretary of State in the last four years of the Obama administration to, to try to shore this up, and, and this just totally undoes everything that he's worked for. So that's that's disappointing. What it does is, it, it to use, again, a cliche, it really lights a match in a tinderbox. I mean, it's, it's unclear how big that fire is going to burn. But the tinderbox is this deeply unstable region already. And I'm talking about on the local level of the city of Jerusalem itself, but on the kind of broader level of the Near East, the Middle East. And so I don't know what is going on. I I, I think a couple things. I'm also thinking like you of the millennialists and the Zionists and the evangelical movement who see in a very distorted scriptural way their bizarre quasi-literal reading of scripture that, that seems to justify their unmitigated support of the state of Israel as a political entity in the 20th and 21st century, which is most clearly not what sacred scripture is talking about. You know, I think there's there might be some appeasement on that front, which is you know something that Donald Trump, as a candidate, was you know drawing from. There's also a certain population of uh, of Jewish financial backers of the Trump campaign, and I think of the media mogul in Nevada and Las Vegas, Sheldon Edelman who has been, a, who? who is, uh, you know, there's plenty of reporting to to show how he has been a voice in the ear of Donald Trump and his advisors. It's, it's a personal ambition of his to see this embassy move take place and this recognition, this form of recognition unfold. So, I mean, there, there are some, you can, you know, what was it that actually inspired this? I'm not sure, but I, I tend to th- agree with your assessment a moment ago that, that this seems incredibly impulsive and perfectly in line with Donald Trump's personality and quote-unquote governance, I would say maybe lack of governance because it's so rooted in impulsivity, it's incredibly dangerous and, and incredibly... I mean, Pope Francis, just speaking from the Catholic tradition, released some very, very strong statements. So did the Secretary of State of the, of the Holy See. I don't know. It's deeply troubling. Well, and you've
0: touched on a piece that I think is really important to recognize, and that is that Jerusalem is simultaneously a geographic space that is contested. I mean, there are there are literal plots of land that, are, that have multiple claimants of ownership, the Temple Mount being sort of ground zero for that, and pardon the phrasing. But Jerusalem exists as disputed space, but it also exists as a disputed symbol. When we, when we read the Bible, when we're told about what the new world will be like, the word that is used is the new Jerusalem. When we think about even social justice and, and hymns, so, you know, Blake writing that British theme, you know, and did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountains green, you know, the end refrain is we will build Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant lands. It is this symbol of of the aspiration of what is to come next. And that touches on what you were saying about the evangelical populations and the fundamentalist populations here in this country. Now these are people, again, and this brings up a problem that we talked about in the last segment, people who claim Christianity in the way in in the same way that we claim Christianity. They are baptized, they are, they are parts of their religious institutions, and yet when they read the scriptures, when they try and enact the scriptures in the world, they, they come away with this very apocalyptic end of the world, we're going to turn the corner and we're going to be the people with the finger on the button to turn the corner kind of approach. And they're there are documentaries about these people and and all of that. It's terrible.
1: It's first of all, it's terrible theology. Just to sure. just to comment on that for a moment, because yeah. you, you summarize that well. It is apocalyptic in, in a certain way, but it's a misreading of even the apocalyptic literature and Scripture. You know what it, what, it, what their view effectively is: this millennial and Zionist, not millennial like the generation right. people born in the eighties, but this idea that they can somehow by establishing a political nation state called Israel, in which Jerusalem is the capital, that somehow that tips God's hand and the second coming of Christ begins. That God is somehow waiting for this political thing to unfold, which stands so wholly, wholly with a W and beginning with an H, against Jesus's whole ministry. Yeah, You know, it's, it's the will of the Father. Jesus didn't come... To be a political messiah, to be somebody who is a agitator or a military victor—it's the complete opposite of that. And so there's there's so many layers of irony that I, I see in Christians who have this incredibly theologically unsound and ungrounded view. For instance, there's an irony in Zionism because there's this view, oftentimes politically, of Amer- of U.S. evangelical Christians of a fundamentalist sort that side with this kind of Zionist movement for uh, a nation state and against, explicitly against a Palestinian state or against Palestinians. And I think there's certainly an Islamophobia rooted in that. Mm-hmm. But the irony is that Palestinians are both Muslim and Christian. Yes, The Christian population in the Middle East is Palestinian. There's so many layers of contradiction and irony that it seems to, uh, you know, escape so many of these folks.
0: Let's also stress that as Americans, we are complete armchair quarterbacks to this entire situation. And we have been since, since the British occupied Palestine, you know, and then ceded the problem to us. And so the whole partition of Palestine and, and Israel, the whole creation of Israel out of the Balfour Declaration and all of that, there's a deep history there of the West coming in and saying, oh, we understand. We can solve this problem. You sit here and you sit here and everything will be fine. And to some extent that that's always worked really well. That's always East, worked right? really well. Yeah. yeah. Colonialism is such a such yeah. a great way of moving forward.
1: He's being sarcastic. People. Yes, I yeah.
0: <laughs> but, but there's also the problem of now, after decades of doing this, the United States actually has a responsibility because we've meddled for so long. We have a responsibility to
1: remain a neutral broker in this exchange, not to pick a side. It's too it's too late though, David, because yeah. You know, you bring up a good point about the kind of political jockeying that's gone on with the space. But the other thing is we cannot claim neutrality. And this has been one of the the biggest problems because we are the largest supplier and the most vocal world ally of the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. I mean, their fighter jets, the bombs, the fact that they have uh, nuclear weapons is our doing the The nuclear
0: weapons is a mercury issue, but yes, uh, yeah. for on the whole, you're correct.
1: Yeah, and it, it's a murky. I, I should acknowledge that. Yeah, yeah but but,
0: yeah. but but I mean, you're correct that we simultaneously have tried to strike this. It's not even a balance. It's it's a it's a strange schizophrenia where we're both the the most ardent supporter of the state of Israel, and we have tried to remain positioned as a neutral broker in the question of the two-state solution and in the question of kind of bringing israel and palestine to the table now some administrations have actually managed to strike that balance jimmy carter managed to do it at the camp david accords i think john kerry was on the way to to getting some ground and some headway on that as well the problem is is that here we have a lot of factions we have a democracy where different factions are pushing for different agendas and different ends. And what we need to realize is there in the state of Israel and in the Palestinian territories, there are factions. To the extent that we want those institutions to be democratic, those factions are also pulling towards their ends, which means that the way that resources are allocated when, they are, when they're brought over, the way that populations are allowed or not allowed to move in certain areas of the space, all of that is governed not by one clear goal, but by goals that are oftentimes in conflict. So, you know, the Palestinian Authority and Hamas have very different goals for how the concrete that is shipped over there should be used. Yeah. Um, the Israeli government in the Knesset is going to have factions that will be both supporting and not supporting the settlers that are pushing Eretz Israel into the Palestinian territories.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking the same thing, actually, about the Knesset. And, and it's unclear to me whether there's even majority support in the Israeli parliament For the move of the U.S. Embassy, it strikes me from what I've seen, and and admittedly, I I guess I could look into this a little bit more, that this is a a kind of a, a pseudo bilateral but truly unilateral move between the president of the United States and the prime minister of Israel, that this is some kind of deal that they are both signed in on for personal reasons. It's unclear what Trump's reasons are. The prime minister of Israel has been very vocal and during the Obama administration, very hostile to the United States because he didn't like the way that the Obama administration was trying to stand firm on the two-state solution mm-hmm. and to, as you were saying a moment ago, uh, particularly with the diplomatic prowess and work of, of John Kerry, to try to bring us back to a place like Carter did at Camp David Accords. And, and we just haven't been that successful since then. Um, but, but part of that is who is the voice of the government but, you know, it's, it's analogous in some ways to us in our Congress and the president's, like the president of the United States making decisions and the Congress not really having any say in it. So I am curious, actually, and I wonder if, if there are people, including political leaders within Israel, that recognize that this is a terrible, terrible move. Oh, there certainly are. Yeah. And
0: I mean, and that gets complex, too, because Israel as a state to be an Israeli is both an identity. It's a political identity, but it's also a symbol and so there are those who within the democratic processes of Israel are trying to push for a more progressive approach to the Palestinian problem and they are oftentimes just as we've talked about in many cases they are they are considered by the hardliners to not be true israelis they're considered by the hardliners to not be true jews to be some and and so you know this folds back on itself we we see that there's that there's a hard edge of a conservative or anti-progressive voice that constantly wants to to look and say you are not towing the line, and therefore you are not a legitimate voice in this discussion. And that's a problem for American politics. It's a problem for Israeli politics. I'm sure it's a problem for Palestinian
1: politics. And and I, I guess so. I, I just have such a hard time. I don't I don't think the sides are even, mm. you know. And sometimes I think it's cast that way. And and you mentioned Hamas, and and it's like the uh, the IRA in Ireland. I mean, yeah, there are factions of people who, in general, working for some kind of justice as they understand it, but they're doing it in ways that that are certainly unjust and violent and we can't support. And so, you know, Hamas's actions, uh, you know, the the missiles and the and the fighting and that sort of thing, that's that's not justifiable, but neither is the Israeli settlements and the growing settlements and encroaching on the the limited space already that the the Palestinian community has. The thing that that bothers me to no end is this imaginary sort of world in which this discussion unfolds all too frequently that when we talk about negotiations between Palestine or the Palestinian authority and Israel and the Israeli le- political leadership, that somehow we're talking about equal partners here. Mm-hmm. I mean, Israel has, we talked about armament in a minute, a minute ago, but they have as much as the U S wants to claim. And, and I think and admirably so, so at times uh, a desire to facil- facilitate a two state solution the Palestinian Authority is the the poor, <laughs> oppressed, smaller entity that doesn't have the financial or military support that the that the US who wants to be the facilitator of this solution up until now has been given to the state of Israel. It's it's to borrow a, a biblical image, it's the David and Goliath, except David doesn't actually have a slingshot, you know, and Goliath is just pummeling. I am all for peace, but I'm reminded of what people like Thomas Merton have said about peace, which is the peace that the world clamors for is not real peace at all. Mm. We shouldn't be working toward that, uh, you know, naively. We we need to take seriously kind of, the, you know, the, the Christian understanding from our perspective, you know, or, you know, at least a, a biblical understanding or religious understanding of peace that includes the powerful, those who are privileged and in, in, in the relationship between and you know, the Palestinians and the Israelis, the Israelis are incredibly privileged. I, I kind of think about it as this, you know, you mentioned, and it's oftentimes framed this way. So it's a very common uh, phrasing to talk about the Palestinian problem. It reminds me of what James Baldwin talks about with with race in the U.S. in the 60s. He's, he writes and he says, you know, everyone's always asking about the, quote, Negro problem. You know, what the problem of black people and, and the struggles in the U.S.? And he's like, the problem isn't a black problem. It's a white problem. Mm. The people who are, in, who are in positions of privilege and advantage and authority and power and military might and political might, they're the ones who are the problem. And so I, I, you know, I'm not trying to cast this as a black and white issue, in ter- by which I mean a binary in the Palestinian-Israeli conflicts. I just, I, I'm just very – I get worked up, as you could tell, yeah. when we don't take into consideration the power dynamics at play. And then to see this kind of thing happen where the U.S., you know, it, the U.S. had minimal credibility to begin with in terms of claiming a space of neutral facilitator when they're clearly pushing the scales on one side. Now that, that any pretense of neutrality is totally lost. And, and I think that's so dangerous. Uh, I mean, I know you're in agreement. We're all basically in agreement uh, about the realities of that. And it it saddens me that there are religious, Christian, religious overtones and influences that have have led to this and that people used to justify this kind of stuff.
0: Well, there's a lot more to say,
1: and I'm sure that
0: this will not be the last time that we talk about Jerusalem or Israel-Palestine on this program. But for now, that probably is a good place to end it. And and just to thank you all for listening, and Dan, thank you for being here as always. yes (laughs)
1: no it's my pleasure and uh you know thank you david this is uh, i'm excited about our this is the first episode of season two yeah
0: the francis effect podcast is produced by sandberg media we record the show at the william adams studios here in beautiful hyde park on the south side of chicago illinois the opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's z y g o n center.org. We also want to give a shout-out to our friends at the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod at gmail.com. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes you can check out from our first season. Thanks for listening.